It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. This year marks a celebration of the late Nina Simone's 90th birthday. The so-called High Priestess of Soul and civil rights activist recorded nearly 40 albums between 1958 and 1973. This firebrand musical icon was often spoken about with admiration and sometimes contempt. Her music has been enjoyed and loved worldwide, and now there is yet another opportunity to hear even more of Simone's work through a previously unreleased live album via Verve Records called You've Got to Learn. This newly discovered gem was recorded live at the 1966 Newport Jazz Festival. The album liner notes for this release were written by my guest today, Shauna L. Redman, who is a scholar and noted author. She is a professor of English and Comparative Literature at the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University. She also taught musicology and jazz studies at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music. In her liner notes about this Newport Jazz Festival recording, Shauna Redman writes, Her performance is not fiery so much as passionate, not critical so much as coaxing, but is, nonetheless, a perfect companion to the moment of grievance and strategy that preceded it. These are love songs, and each captured something of the careful combination of intimacy and immediacy on stage for which Simone was known. Join me now for a fascinating conversation with this Nina Simone scholar. So how did you end up being chosen for this particular project to write the album notes or liner notes as they're referred to for the album You've Got to Learn being put out by Verve? Or was that something that you personally pursued? I did not pursue this. I was contacted by the label um, and pleasantly so. And so I don't know the exact route by which they came to me. I do know that, you know, some of my more public writings for NPR and BBC have, have circulated just a bit. And so I think it's possible that they saw some of that work and knew that the kinds of tone that liner notes typically take for a more general audience was very much within my wheelhouse. So I've been thinking about Nina Simone for about 20 years now. I wrote about her in my first book titled Anthem and was really curious about the spectacular rise of her political voice within her creative production and spent a lot of time thinking about this precise moment of the middle 1960s. I focused toward the latter end of the decade on To Be Young, Gifted and Black in my book but this entire decade and certainly those few years that preceded it as well as what extended after were all a part of my purview in thinking about this evolution both of her sound but also of her political identifications and thinking so i think it was for that reputation that i was asked to participate in the production of the newport release i hope at least that's what it is and i was really pleased to have that opportunity it's always an honor so i'm hoping that uh, that reputation also preceded me adding to the luster of experience that you bring to the table you, uh, as a graduate of McAllister College, were trained as a vocalist before achieving your PhD at Yale University. 
Yes, I was. I was um, a an aspiring vocalist at the time of my late teens and early 20s. I, I pretty quickly recognized that I wasn't really cut out for gigging because of all the evaluation it entails, but recognized that coming into university settings was its own <laughs> process of constant evaluation. So I don't know that I made you know, the choice for the proper reasons, but I'm so happy to continue studying music because of what it brought to me as a performer. The release uh, that's currently out and available uh, for all the world to hear, which uh, is actually from a 1966 previously unreleased uh, recording of uh, Nina Simone's uh, appearance at the Newport Jazz Festival. Yes, this is a previously unreleased recording. And of course, we know that this happens regularly to musicians, particularly of this era, that there will be recordings either with or without their knowledge that some decades, generations, even later might make an appearance for new audiences. And this is one of those productions. And it's um, curious to me to, to consider how we might have gotten here. I don't actually know the story of where this recording came from, but um, is one that certainly is going to have a wide, wide audience. In looking at the album notes that you authored, I I, I learned uh, for the first time, maybe I just wasn't paying attention, that uh, the preceding event to the Newport Festival where this was recorded was the uh, Atlanta Jazz Festival, which was uh, actually uh, set up at uh, Atlanta Stadium. And it was almost like the uh, rehearsal for the Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah, so this was also an event participated in by the founder of the Newport Festival. And it was a big kind of blowout event in welcome of people to this new stadium that became the Atlanta Braves MLB Stadium, Major League Baseball. Um, So imagine this was part of what so intrigued me about the introduction by Leonard Feather, which is recorded on this album from 66, where he's mentioning this event in Atlanta and the the spectacular kind of auspicious entrance of the musicians, in particular Nina in Atlanta, where she emerges from the dugout in order to play her set. So I thought it was a really um, interesting, kind of curious, and I think as you're suggesting, little known event and opportunity to introduce her in a way that I think is really fitting of her larger career, which is that she knew how to make an entrance. And so these kinds of of scene setting moments within um, telling her story, I think are really significant for giving us some sense of who she was and how she showed up. What is it about Nina Simone that uh, really intrigues you or grabs your interest? She's a very complex person. She is uh, just incredible. She's been described as everything as sassy, the divine one. Yeah, I mean, those dichotomies are exactly right. Those are the kinds of receptions that she received during her career, particularly in this moment after Mississippi Goddamn in 1964. People were either entirely on her team, kind of deep fans of her and kind of stalwart supporters, or they very much were willing to vilify her in the public, 
in public discourse, in the public imaginary. And I think I, I reference that kind of dichotomy in the liner notes as well, because it's something that was capable of drawing a lot of t attention to her. Whether it was praise or villainy, she always had an audience for whatever it is that she did, whatever it is that she said. So my curiosity with her was, again, is again longstanding, but came from both her inability to be categorized, right? She's one of these musicians who was absolutely um, capacious in her musical knowledges, in her investments and techniques, and so, so curious such that she would branch out into any given melodic or non-melodic form at her fingertips. So it was both about her expansiveness as a musician, but then it was also about her ability to take risks, about her courage mm -hmm. and about her integrity. And I think those two things in combination are what makes ultimately for her longevity and the continued interest, deep interest in her such that releases like this will always have an audience. Well, she certainly was not only the singer, songwriter, and artist, but she was also a, a very strong and, and vocal political activist. Yeah, I mean, she was absolutely a political mind and voice to be contended with. I mean, she was in conversation and deep study with mentors, including Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin. Lorraine Hansberry, she credits in her autobiography with having, um, you know, taught her what it was like to be a black woman, to open her eyes to the world in ways that she previously had been unwilling or unable to. James Baldwin, of course, brought a certain kind of lyricism to her work. She was also very close with Langston Hughes, whose uh, poetry she set to music over her career. So there were all of these things, having written kind of memorials for Martin Luther King Jr. and participated in dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of fundraisers for civil rights organizations over the course of her career. And then again, with my interest in To Be Young, Gifted and Black, having her songs adopted as anthems by movement organizations. I mean, just the accolade after accolade and not on the scale of of a Kennedy Medal or something like that, but accolades that were coming from those communities of which she saw herself part. And it happened on a global scale, of course, right? Not simply at the moment in which she went into exile later in her career, but also in her travels throughout the Caribbean and West Africa. Well, she also had a tough road that led to the activism that she engaged in. Even when she was, I think, what, 12 years old, she had a, a classical music recital and her parents were supposed to sit in the front row, which they did, but then they were moved to the back row. And she claimed that it was because, of course, they were black. She recognized this at that very young age and staged her own protest in that moment until her parents were returned to their rightful seats in the front row, she would not play. And it worked. And so even at that moment, she's acknowledging a certain kind of, of learning that she was receiving as a black child in the Jim Crow South, having been born and raised for the majority of her childhood in North Carolina. She was clear about what the world was offering to her and what she was contending with. Well, I mean, even her own personal pursuits of education, she had applied, even though she uh, had a wonderful education, she went to Juilliard, et cetera, but then she applied to the Curtis Institute, I think it was in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and they turned her down. 
they turned her down. And through the kind of rumor mill of Black Philadelphia, she came to be confirmed in her original thought, which was that it was because of her race that she had been declined admission. And she made them rue that decision, of course, right? Going on to become the indefatigable Nina Simone. But at that time, of course, she wanted a classical career. She wanted to be a classical pianist. And when Curtis refused her, that's when we got the popular Nina Simone. So in hindsight, I'm grateful to them for having been so shameful. Well, and of course, uh, at least they tried to make up for it. And just before she died, they issued an honorary degree to her anyway. Yes, there was a lot to honor by that point. So when you were putting together these album notes, was there a particular goal in mind? And, and did, did they say, okay, you can write 34,000 words? Or you have to limit it to 1,200? They gave me a, a rough parameter of about 1,500 at maximum end. Um, and that, of course, had to do with kind of packaging and their anticipations for cost and things. Um, but no, they gave me no other parameters. And because of the, the kind of work that I do and that I'm interested in, I wanted to make sure that I was giving readers some sense of the scale of her impact. And that meant to me both talking about the music as it was represented on the album, but talking about how we got there. And one of the ways that we got there very specifically was in thinking about the event that she did just prior to Newport. So there was the Atlanta event that Leonard Feather references. And in between the Atlanta event and the Newport event, she stopped in Jackson, Mississippi, where she played an all-star salute to the marchers of the James Meredith March. Um, James Meredith, who was a civil rights activist in Mississippi working towards integration and was wounded by a sniper during the course of his march his peaceful, nonviolent march. And that march was then taken up and completed by Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael of SNCC and other movement organizations and organizers. And at the end of the march in Jackson, Mississippi, Nina Simone and Sammy Davis Jr. and James Brown were the headliners for a concert. And so I wanted to set this scene for Nina that she's coming to Newport after having just been in this heated, loving, intense moment of organizing and celebration at the successful closure of the Meredith March while he was recovering. And also marking this moment too, it's a very curious one and an important one for histories of black activism because it's during this march that Stokely Carmichael use, first uses the language publicly of black power. And so she's just returned from this moment of having been in relation with people who are thinking now differently about their activism, about the language we might use, about the ways of relating to one another in the world. And I think she carried some of that into her set in Newport. And albeit that set was very brief and did five songs and then one as an encore. Yes, it is a relatively brief set, especially for her because she is given to ad-libbing and vamping and extending any given piece. So um, for her to have been so contained in this moment, possibly it's fatigue from the event prior and the accumulation of events prior. Uh, perhaps it was at the request of the festival organizers, right, who had many other musicians to bring on stage. But it is, it's a nice kind of capsule of performance 
from which I think fans and newcomers to her work alike will find something really beautiful. And you eloquently portrayed this in your album notes. Uh, they they really uh, not only educate you, but point out these personality traits and all the things that are Nina Simone. And, and uh, one in particular you talk about when she performed Mississippi Goddamn, uh, but yet she performed it differently this time in Newport, and you very eloquently portray that in the notes. Thank you so much. I think it's really important, again, in giving the broadest sense possible of who she was as a musician to really mark these moments where she's reinventing herself. So she's known to do these transformative covers and to make these songs unrecognizable after having come from some other musician. And she does that in her set at Newport, but she also reinvents herself. She reinvents her own composition, Mississippi Goddamn, and, and reinvents it to the extent that the audience whom we hear in the background does not even know that it's that song until she's halfway through the first line of the vocals. So it's an amazing swing that she brings to this version of Mississippi Goddamn. And it almost sounds joyous as she's still using very similar language, even though it's updated to include the Watts rebellion that had just transpired in the last year and things such as that. The song sounds radically different, even as it still has a similar bite to the original. You say in the notes that uh, this was a love song for those lost and those fighting. And uh, that meant that as the closer for her set, instead, it was uh, an entrance for the shape-shifting genius of ivory and air. How lovely. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, tr I want, you know, it's difficult to write about music because you want the language to approximate. It'll never match, but you want it to approximate the beauty of which you write, the beauty of the music itself. And so I do struggle with language in order to get close to it. But those are the kinds of metaphors and illusions that she brings to mind for me when listening to her. I do think that she's a genius of ivory and air, and it's important to to mark both of those things, right? I think we think a lot about her vocals and her voice, which are critical, 
but I want us to also remember that she's playing the piano at the same time and that she's leading the band and she's doing all of these things simultaneously and really setting different tones depending on the environment in which she's in. And so again, these live recordings, these newly discovered recordings are really important because they're telling us who she was at that moment, which may not have been the same as the day before or even the day after, but at that moment, this is who she was. I don't think she wanted to walk away from that stage without allowing the audience to remember who she was. Right. I think there was an opportunity for her there. She used it to do these amazing covers, to sing these love songs, to try out songs that were still forthcoming from her next album. But she also knew that this song, first of all, was at this point, one of her calling cards, if not the calling card of her career, along with probably I Loves You Porgy, which she does early in the set. Um, but that this is fundamentally who she is. She is this person who responds in real time to the world. And she wanted folks to remember that as she exited the stage. The, the crowd just wouldn't let her go. And they wanted more. And, and why not? It's true. Leonard Feather was trying his best to calm them, <laughs> uh, not knowing whether or not she'd return. And this, of course, had everything was her prerogative, right? Of course, she likely assumed there would be calls for an encore, but it was entirely up to her whether she um, responded favorably to that request. So as he's trying to calm everyone around him, he's also keeping an ear open for the stage crew. Is she coming? Is she coming? So that he might further pacify them. Well, and she chose a rather interesting song and came back out on stage to do a solo performance without her band or ensemble and just her and the piano to do music for lovers. Yes, it's a very curious return. One that I think matches some of the sentiment already exposed in the set. But of course, when you exit from Mississippi Goddamn, that's a different kind of tone, a different kind of engagement with the audience. And so to return with such intimacy and such carefulness and care for her listeners, I think also is reflective in a certain capacity of having just been in Jackson. I think she wanted to be delicate with her audiences, even as she also wanted to challenge them and incite them to further discussion and debate and action, I think she also wanted to demonstrate a deep love and appreciation for those around her as well. And I, I think it was a good choice of a song from the perspective of it's one that uh, I think the lyrics uh, really give hope. Uh, there is optimism in it. You know, there, music is what it's all about. We come together. We're a community. We're in this together. And the best way to survive all of this is us to be together. That's absolutely right. And I know that Nina believed that. As fiery and contentious as she could sometimes be, she ultimately walked and lived in the world with hope. And I think that those elements are things that we hear repeatedly in her repertoire if we listen closely enough. And this was one of those moments to lean in that much further and to listen to her alone with both of her instruments, her voice and her piano in, in kind of rapt attention of the kind of love and care she wanted to model for us. 
And of course, she didn't get that rapt attention at first because I, I guess the sound engineer uh, hit the wrong button or something. Uh, the, it was starting out very soft and quiet, and you could hardly hear her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they made the adjustments appropriately, and then there was some person cajoling out in the audience and said something, and she said, shut up, shut up. Yes, and all of it is on the recording, which I love. Again, mm-hmm. these live performances are fantastic for precisely that reason. Can you hear me? One, two, three. You can hear me now? sound of a sigh and there's music for lovers in the hush of my dreams of a child but it also shows that quick flip that she's able to make both around the quality of the sound as it's being received, that she can instruct the technicians, not only the musicians, but the technicians and the stage crew. But then also she is listening to her audience very intimately. And if she has to respond in such a clipped manner, she will in order to move forward what she envisions for her set. And I love, uh, like, for example, with uh, Blues for Mama, she did a really nice intro about, hey, here's what this song's all about. And now, now we're going to do a gut bucket blues. It is so because of its background. There's an old porch, and there's an old man, and there's a beat up guitar and a broken bottle. There are flies all around, there is molasses all around, and he's composing his tune on a hot afternoon. In this case, this song is called Blues for Mama. The lyrics written by Abby Lincoln and I wrote the music. The, it will appeal to a certain type of woman who've had this kind of experience. Yeah, she's really setting the scene. I mean, she shows up in many instances as a real educator of the music that she's going to perform, right? It's almost like she's Uh, an ethnographer of her own performance, announcing to the listeners what they should expect and setting the scene where she's talking on the album about being on the porch in the Mississippi Delta, flies hovering around a honey jar, right? The blues man with his guitar. So all of these things that are really meant to paint a picture for the audience, forget that you're in Rhode Island. I'm gonna take you now to the Mississippi Delta, please go with me.
Um, and then, of course, delivers this incredible song with lyrics by Abby Lincoln. And you're firmly planted there. Whether you have the visuals in mind or not, the sound puts you precisely there. There were those things where she was keeping her audience in mind, like uh, throwing in I Loves You, Porgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was her number one single, and that's the one that essentially put her on the map. Yes, absolutely. That was her first big hit in her career, 1958. I love you, Drive me mad If you can keep me I'd like to stay here with you forever And Absolutely. She wanted to invite people in where they were, but then also take them to all of these different places, right? You may know me for Porgy, but these are all of the other things I've been thinking about and living with over the last eight years of my career, which just shot off to spectacular heights over that relatively brief amount of time. Every sound she ever touched is somewhere in this set. Everything she's ever heard is somewhere present in this brief moment in Newport, and it's really stunning to hear. Uh, I love that I think purposely she chose uh, You've Got to Learn because it was a lesson. Yes, and are afraid to learn for fear of failing. And I think this is another Simone lesson. You've got to learn, although it's very hard The way of pocketing your pride And sometimes face humiliation While you were burning up inside Facing reality is often hard to do When it seems happiness is gone You've got to learn to hide your tears, child Tell your soul that life must go on Got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served. I can't speak for her personally, of course. Everyone has some amount of fear around failing, but if you think about her capacity as a musician, 
all of the different sounds and techniques and approaches that she was able to display throughout her career, you have to consider that she was unafraid or, or less afraid than so many others to fail because she was willing to take on so many different sounds. They all became hers uniquely. And I think this was one of her lessons. And, you know, within that context, she also, uh, to me, brought in a song, Be My Husband, which gave the audience an opportunity to say, you know, it isn't all drama. It isn't all uh, craziness. Uh, there's also fun. And a Be My Husband is really a fun song, it, just with the, the, the beat uh, and, and the drummer just syncopated uh, rhythm coming out. And, and, you know, you could see audience clapping along with it. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite songs, actually, in her repertoire, in part for the pared downness of it, but still the lusciousness of it, that the rhythmic invention and consistency requires that you be in your body in a different way than hearing her play over the keys and to bring different kinds of melodic structures. It is really all rhythm and percussive voice. so so beautiful it, it forces people into a different mode of listening and that kind of agility is something that marks her audiences because they have to keep pace with her so what's the takeaway message in your opinion uh, as to your notes uh, for this particular album i think the takeaway is to lead with love I make an argument there that all of these are love songs, even Mississippi Goddamn in this particular venue and moment and performance. And I think that she is really demonstrating for everyone to walk into the world carefully and conscientiously, but through love. And it's a really important moment to be thinking about all of these things, the urban rebellions, even in the wake of civil rights legislation, we have to continually be vigilant in our conscientiousness and care for one another. And I think that love being the organizing measure of her set on that day says everything about how she wanted to proceed in the world. Will there be a future for you for more album notes and liner notes? I do, do hope so. I would love that. So if you in the future take a complete 180 
and you go back to pursuing a career as a vocalist, who would you like to write the liner notes for you? Oh, that's a tremendous question. My goodness. And I may be stumped. I mean, I think off the top of my head, someone who's writing about music I love very much is Hanif Abdurraki. Um, so I would love it if he would consider writing notes for me. If I do eventually get to that demo that I did promise myself I would record someday. Well, you do have an extensive body of work in both the world of academia as well as uh, within the music industry and in the involvement of uh, social and cultural issues as well. How can our listeners learn more about you? I have a website, shaunaredmond.com, that is under construction, but will be up soon. I also have my faculty profile at columbia.edu, Columbia University, my faculty website. Um, but my books are Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora. That's the book that includes Nina Simone. And then my most recent is Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. And both of those are available at your favorite bookseller. Shauna, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. And I'm glad that we had this opportunity to have you as our guest on All That's Jazz. I'm so thankful. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with scholar, professor, and author, Shauna L. Redmond. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.